I am Lucas Mack, and I'm on a mission to see the hurting get healed and the healed go out and heal others in order for all of us to experience the true love and light we desire. This podcast is me sharing my journey with you so you don't feel alone in your journey. Welcome to the Golden Rule Revolution. Hello, everyone. I'm Lucas Mack, and welcome back to the Golden Rule Revolution. Thank you for joining me. Um, this is episode 200, which is a big milestone for me, and I'm really excited. I uh, did not do my hair today, put a hat on. First time ever being on camera with a hat on, but it uh, doesn't matter. Here we are, brothers and sisters. I am so honored and grateful to have you join me on this journey. It's such a beautiful time to be together. It's such a beautiful time to share. I've connected with so many of you in on Instagram and we've hopped on zoom calls and, and uh, had the honor and privilege to be able to work with many of you, um, in coaching. And I'm just grateful. And so I want to say thank you so much for, uh, walking with me in this journey listening to the content, sharing the show, the audience has grown, um, so much, and it's such a blessing. So I honor you. I bless you. And I love you all. And that said, I am so excited to bring episode 200 to you today. I interviewed Mitzi Perdue. Now, Mitzi is the daughter of one of the Sheraton Hotel founders, and she has grown up in a world that many of us have never even seen um, or could conceive of, quite frankly. She grew up in an incredible life of privilege, and she also ended up marrying Frank Perdue of Perdue Farms, and she shares lessons that she learned from both her father, her, uh, her now late husband. And she also shares a mission that she has stepped into to end human trafficking. And this is why I'm so happy that I was able to connect with Mitzi. She started an organization. You'll hear all about it. And what I would say about this, if we do not bring light into the darkness, that which remains in darkness can operate freely. So we must shine light. We must drive darkness out simply by shining light. We don't even have to fight the darkness. When light is present, darkness is not. Darkness is not a counterforce to light. Darkness exists in the absence of light. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, we simply get to be the light this world is looking for and also direct our light into areas that Darkness has ruled for far too long. There are so many hurting and broken people out there on this planet. And you're going to hear the statistics from Mitzi that perhaps are waiting for you to shine the light on it, to stand for liberty and justice for all, regardless of the political structures, the even the, the legal side of where we find the world in right now. You and I have the authority to stand for liberty and justice for all. And so I'm thanking you. I'm honored that you joined. Thank you, Mitzi, for coming on. And everyone, enjoy. Well, I'm so happy to have Mitzi Purdue on the podcast. And this is our second time talking since um, we had the pleasure of recording an episode on The Awakened Soul last week. And so, Mitzi, how are you? It's good to see you. 
Oh, I'm, I'm just as happy as a person can be to be back. Thank you yeah. so much for having me twice. Yay. Yes, it's such an honor. It's such an honor. Um, really excited to, uh, you know, have you share some of the stories you shared um, the other day, but also talk about the nonprofit, talk about what you're doing, and also some of the lessons that your dad learned in business in his in his sleep or in his dreams, which is beautiful and, and uh, the messages he got. So I'm excited to get into all this. Um, so for those who are just hearing your name or seeing you, meeting you, um, share, share your story where, where you grew up and the life that you lived growing up. Okay. I'm wondering how serious to be like, I could say, Oh gosh, guys, I'm wonderful, but maybe we ought to be serious. <laughs> a little, um, a little. No, seriously. Uh, I grew up in Boston and uh, my background was that my late father was the co-founder along with his brother and his roommate from college of the Sheraton Hotel chain, mm. which meant that, boy, did I ever have a nice childhood. Mm. And, and one of the things that I consider myself supremely lucky for is that I think both my parents put an amazing amount of effort into raising their children. Mm. They didn't just leave it to chance. That's beautiful. And well, the reason, well, the reason that I think that's so important is I grew up with a lot of wealthy families, a mm. lot of wealthy children, and the number of ways people can screw up their lives, whether they're rich or poor, is infinite. So I think that every parent ought to put just enormous effort into figuring out what were the values that will help somebody have a happy life. Hmm. Yeah. Did you grow up with, this is one of the questions I forgot to ask you the other day, because I asked all the guests, did you grow up with a religious framework or worldview um, in your family? Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of mixed. My mother was devout. My father would accompany the family to church services every single Sunday, but he was not devout. Mm. But on the other hand, he believed in the message of religion and the values of religion. So I think that he was a religious person. How about without, without buying into a, a particular religion? Well, that's, I appreciate that. And I totally understand that. Um, so would you say that you had, that context of the spiritual that you there was the spiritual realm that there was something more than this physical world that you grew up with yeah and i i believe i got that from both sides hmm. i mean but both sides being mother and father mm -hmm. both of them were absolutely deep believers in that we're here to to give back hmm. and that yeah one of the thoughts that i grew up with was that success is measured not by what you can get, but by what you can give. Mm -hmm. And that the purpose of life is service. And tell me if this isn't a spiritual point of view. I, I remember once when I was really quite young, I might've been 10 or 12, mm -hmm. walking into my father's office. It was on a Saturday and he had an office in our home. And you know, there he is surrounded by books and just deep into whatever he's doing. And I'm, you know, I'm a little girl and I interrupt him. What are you doing, daddy? And he explained that he was giving money away, that he was, he was researching people, since he was an extremely wealthy man, people you know, regularly asked for money or more important organizations, charities would ask for money. Mm. And, and he was figuring out 
I guess, the most worthy. And so I asked him, why are you doing that? And he told me, the greatest pleasure my money ever gave me was in giving it away. Hmm. Now, isn't that spiritual rather than material? Certainly, certainly. And, and definitely aligns to the concept of currency like water. And if you, if you allow water to go, the more water can flow through. But if you dam that up, it starts to overflow and cause mess. So yeah, this incredibly beautiful. Yeah, and then my mother, you know, just from the youngest age, I remember her telling that, you know, what was really important in life was, and I'm going to use her exact phrase, but I'm not sure if it makes sense to, to people outside the family. I will put it to you. Does this make sense? Is this comprehensible? She told me, and I, I bet I was two or three when I heard this the first time, that your job is to put back in the bucket. Mm. Does, does that make sense? I'll, I'll translate further. Well, we have a book uh, that my daughter, my oldest, we bought for her. Someone bought it for her and said, fill the bucket. And it's always, I think it's around the same concept of every day we're either putting into the bucket or taking out of someone's bucket. Yeah. So it is the same. I mean, the way I interpret put back in the bucket is you're getting a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but give back. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, when I say getting a lot of stuff, uh, they were actually, I grew up in the, I was a child in the 1940s and teen years in, in the 1950s. They were actually quite, uh, I think by today's standard would, would almost say stingy mm -hmm. because gifts in general came at birthday or Christmas. And you didn't get a hundred gifts. You might get uh, four or five. Mm. And I, I think they'd be kind of horrified at, at how, how kind of free spending we are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then I also remember the first time, well, I grew up during the, the war years, but even up until the early 1950s, I think uh, yeah, times were tough for Americans. I mean, they're certainly not as tough as they were in, in other countries, but it was, it was a time when, you know, the overhanging debt was enormous. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just the whole 40s, I think, were, were fairly difficult times in this country as well as everywhere else, including that my brother was uh, in the Navy. And I, I have a somewhat unique view. I hope I don't lose friends as I tell this story, but I've got, an, a, I think, a it's not a unique view. I have a personal view of, of dropping the bomb. Mm. And you know, this is such a delicate subject, but here's, here's what it meant to me. Uh, my brother, as a Navy guy, was steaming towards, I think it was Okinawa. Mm. And you know, it was known that something like 300,000 Americans would die and probably a bigger number of Japanese if, if there was a ground fight in Japan. Mm. And so there is my, my brother steaming towards what looked like a very likely death. Mm. And then suddenly the war's over. So yeah. you now from my point of view, um, I'm glad that it came to a sudden end. You know, I have a, I have a story along uh, the atomic bomb as well. I was in, Nagasaki I was filming a TV show I was the host of this show a few years ago and we go to Nagasaki and there's the statue um, 
anyone listening you should look this up I, I forget how big the statue is but it might be 18 feet from head to toe and it's the statue sitting in this lotus position and we're the only white people there we're in japan everyone's japanese and these school children were there and it's a solemn you know you feel the solemnness of it and these beautiful beautiful little children were playing on their flutes or recorders or something they're playing amazing grace and oh i started goodness. crying it was so it's one of those moments i will never forget and, and i said while i was recording they were filming i said out of the darkest dark can come most come forth the most brilliant light I'm like, look at, we are on this ground that got decimated, but here are these beautiful children are playing amazing grace, treating us like friends, not like foe. And this, I said, this was the beauty of humanity that we can, we can unite in this love for one another. And um, so the bomb certainly is in some respects, devastating in other respects, unifying and humbling for some. And yeah, that's why when you said, when we talked about, I always ask people religion, just because I think it's fascinating where people come from and then where they are today. But I like what you said, your dad, you know, took the principles, but never jumped in necessarily one camp. Because I think when we can stay in that center space, it allows us to relate to everyone, to anyone, to bring them close. And, yeah. In fact, that's, yeah, if if I could wave a magic wand and do something wonderful for America, I'd have us unite over. I mean, there's a lot that that we can unite over. Mm, yeah, and like one of the things we can unite over the environment, yeah. and we can unite over being against human trafficking, which is my cause. Actually, there I'm I'm heavily involved in both causes, but human trafficking more. And let's get into that because um, <laughs> can you tell people this is good? What WTF stands for in your world? <laughs> uh, all right, then, then let me share a story with you about how we got the name. Originally, my efforts at anti-trafficking were going to be to get ultra high net worth people to donate objects for an auction. Hmm with the immodest goal of raising $100 million. But that's not impossible because we got some pretty amazing donations. Wow. Well, it, it was the organization was going to be called the Anti-Trafficking Auction. Hmm. Uh, and people, by the way, this may still happen, but it's been put off because of COVID-19. But the idea is people give million dollar items for an auction, and then they say where the money goes. That's on hold until COVID-19 is in the rear view mirror. Mm. However, you know, I'm, a, I'm, you know, I take out the name on, you know, I got a website, the antitraffickingauction.com. And then, uh, and I'm, I'm getting volunteers, probably a hundred at this point. And one guy who's a volunteer, his name's Terry Wu. Mm. He called me up and he explained to me, I'm a neuroscientist. I'm not just a neuroscientist, I'm a neuroscience marketer, hmm. which means that when he advises people on marketing, he takes into account how our brains work. Hmm. And he said, Mitzi, the name you chose sucks. 
And I'm grateful as a person can be because he convinced me that he was totally right. He said, the problem is it's not memorable. There's no call to action. Yeah. It doesn't roll off the tongue. So it really does suck. Hmm. He said, instead, he told me he had spent the afternoon, or maybe it was the morning, looking for names that would have that would meet his criteria of what makes for a good name. And he discovered on register.com that this wonderful name, winthisfight.org, was available. Hmm. And so the name of my organization is Win This Fight, and the subtitle is uh, Stop Human Trafficking Now. But he explained to me why Win This Fight is a good name. Uh, there's a call to action. It's easy to say. And guess what? If you think of its initials, WTF, it's memorable. Yeah. But he told me something else, which I'm eager to share with everybody. A really good name has just, a or a good slogan, has a little bit of wrongness to it. Mm. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe the grammar is not right. Maybe it's a funny spelling, but something that makes it stick in your mind because it's not quite right. And he said, Nancy, he said, you come across as you know, somewhat ladylike. And to have you have an organization, the initials of which are WTF, <laughs> that, that this is sort of discordant. And he said, that makes it memorable. Uh, and I, I shared the, the idea for the name with, with my board of directors and others. And they said, that name's beyond genius. Hmm. You know, the, when this fight's good, but WTF is even better. That's right. That's right. So everyone listening, now you have a new definition of what that acronym stands for. And, and, it, and it's such an important, it, it's, as someone, I was abused severely growing up. And as someone who's gone through the horrors of, of significant abuse to know what these kids, women and children are going through without a voice to speak for them and to yell for them and to fight for them. It's devastating to the soul of humanity. So I'm so thankful that you're doing what you're doing to bring awareness. And like I said to you the other day, hopefully someday it's won that fight instead of win this fight. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. But, but you know, WTF, it may be discordant for it coming out of my mouth, but guess what? It's so appropriate. I mean, I really feel WTF, yeah. you know, that here in, in, in today's world that there's still slavery going on and that there's 40 million people who are enslaved. It's just, it, it shouldn't be. It's, it brings up so many issues. I was a journalist for a long time. I've met many friends in the national, the highest seats in the national media and it's frustrating for them and for myself knowing that there's just a certain narrative that is allowed to be broadcasted as quote unquote news. And then there is the omission of narratives that would radically shift this entire country and world's perspective if it was brought through the forefront of mainstream media or, and we talked about this the other day If people want to look away from these horrific, you know, I think the first time you saw it, you know, it was the, you said the, you wanted to look away, but then if we keep looking away, 
it allows this to continue. Yeah, it's, it's, I got involved in this two years ago. I mean, I've, I've got to just put it out there that I'm, I'm new at this. There are people who've been working on it for 20, 30, 40 years, but you have to start somewhere. So I just plunge ahead. But two years ago, human trafficking was the third source of income for organized crime. Mm. It's grown so fast that it's now the second largest source of income for organized crime. And I'm going to bet people are curious, well, what, what are the others? Yeah. All right. Number three is illegal weapons. Hmm. Uh, number two is human trafficking. And number one is drugs. Hmm. But, you know, this is kind of horrifying, but human trafficking is just growing and growing and growing. And I've, I've heard people say that they'd rather deal humans than drugs because a human, it's awful, almost too awful to say, but I'm, I'm repeating what people have told me, that supposing you're trafficking a woman, or maybe you're trafficking four women, you can use them over and over again, probably until they die. Mm -hmm. yeah. On the other hand, with drugs, you have to keep getting more. Right. So you know, unless we do something to stop it, it, it keeps growing. And I have a pretty strong opinion of why it keeps growing. Yeah, why? And that, that, by the way, is also related to what I think can put a real dent in, in the problem. Human trafficking, in my opinion, grows and grows and grows because the profits are just extraordinary. I mentioned $150 billion. Mm. But to bring it down to uh, something more comprehensible than $150 billion, I mean, I don't know what $150 billion really means, but to bring it down to a level that's easier to understand, a trafficker who is exploiting or running four girls in Manhattan in the course of a year can pretty easily have an income of a million dollars a year tax-free. Wow. Okay, so when you, when you have those kinds of profits, you know, the temptation's enormous. Mm -hmm. But another part of the equation is you know, enormous profits, but almost no deterrence. The, the trafficker, and I, I've gotten this information from multiple sources, and how about it's a global statistic. If you're a trafficker, your odds of doing jail time or even paying a serious penalty are less than one in 100. Hmm. I mean, isn't that amazing? You're, you, you can commit one of the most horrible atrocities in the world, which is enslave another person, and you're not going to pay a price for it. Why do you think uh, that is? Okay, I, I'll give you the reason why. Yeah. Because they're extraordinarily adept at keeping their victims from testifying. Mm -hmm. They, yeah, you know, whether it's, you know, torture, death, threatening their relatives, one way or another, mm -hmm. it's incredibly hard to get people to testify. They are unwilling witnesses. No. We have an answer for that. But let me finish the evil equation of, of huge profits, obscene profits, mm -hmm. and no deterrence equals ex ever-expanding trafficking, more and more trafficking. So we have, to, we have to stop either the huge profits or the no deterrence, or even better, if you could go after both, and there's a way. How is that? Thank you for asking. 
Yeah, because we're talking about one of the darkest subjects on the face of the earth. Yeah. But but I'm into being upbeat and hopeful because there I'm going to describe something that's fairly new. And it's well, let me go back, I don't know, three or four generations to Al Capone, the famous uh, crime boss. That man was responsible for dozens and dozens, possibly even hundreds of murders. People lost their lives because this man existed. Mm -hmm. And yet they were never able to put him in jail for the murders that he committed. Mm. But what they were finally able to get him on was tax evasion, a financial crime. Well, Polaris, which is an organization I admire to the outer limits, it's I think it's got to be one of the most prestigious, most effective anti-trafficking organizations in the United States. It has just started a financial crimes unit, but I don't think it's funded on nearly the scale that it should be. I mean, I want hundreds of people going after financial crimes. And as far as I can tell, they've got two like financial experts and the others, again, I mean, I may be wrong on this, but it looks of the four people who are working on it, uh, to have some kind of administrative role. Mm. I, I mean, I, I, if I could make, make the magic wand, they'd get the funding to have 100 people go after it, financial mm. crimes. And allow me to explain how going after financial crimes works with trafficking. Yeah, please. All right, supposing that you're the head of a, uh, I don't know, a police department in some medium-sized, small-sized town, Mm -hmm. and you absolutely know that there's trafficking going on. You know, you've got all these tips, um, and you know, you've got, you've got ways of finding out what's going on in the community. Mm -hmm. But you also know that you can't get any of the victims to testify. You know, they're afraid for their lives. And, you know, it's an example of being afraid for your life. I had an NYPD, New York Police Department person tell me that he visited a woman in the hospital who had had her face gashed with a a broken beer bottle from like eye to chin, 32 stitches, and she still wouldn't testify against her abuser because she was so afraid of him. Yeah. Okay, so back to being the head of a police department. You know that there's trafficking going on. You're absolutely certain that you can't get the victims to testify. They are too afraid. Mm. And if they're not afraid for themselves, they're afraid for their families. Yep. Yeah. So what do you do? Uh, up to now, it's a real problem. Mm. But what Polaris can do is they can, they can, working with the police department, working with law enforcement, they can get all the information that, the, that law enforcement has, and they probably have a lot. And then they can put it together with the financial crimes unit, which has the ability to like go out in the dark web track money movements, use artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. just uh, use a whole array of tools that are not available to a typical police department. And they're not available to the typical police department because the people with this kind of expertise you know, it may cost a quarter of a million dollars per person. Yeah. And yeah, that's just not in the cards for most police departments to hire the experts that Polaris can handle. Right. Well, you put... Polaris's knowledge of financial crimes, together with the on the ground knowledge that the police department has, and you don't have to worry about reluctant witnesses because 
as Sarah Crow from Polaris says, if you've got bank records and other like written records, or maybe, maybe they're available on the dark web, but you can show where the money came from and, and where it's going. And you can prove that it was illegally obtained because you know where it came from. Uh, you've got a pretty good chance of putting that perpetrator in jail. Mm. Speaking of the perpetrators, I mean, it's not the impoverished people that are buying other human beings. You have to have some sort of financial means to commit this heinous crime. So what, what is the demographic of someone purchasing another human being that I think people <sighs> know or be aware or how do we start p- putting this puzzle piece together of what it looks like? My impression is from, and I've done articles on probably a hundred different anti-trafficking organizations. So hmm. I'm going to tell you what my best impression is. And that is that, boy, you, you don't have to have a high income to have a sex drive. Hmm. And maybe, maybe you have a way of getting it for 50 or $60. Hmm. Uh, so how about if, if you have a source of income, you're probably in the demographic. I mean, you can be very rich, you can be middle class, or you, I mean, you can't be destitute, but you can have a pretty low income and, and still do this. At some degree, maybe not owning, but maybe using the person. Oh, wait, are, are we talking about the Johns who- uh, Yeah, just like who's- bu- who, who, who are buying sex. Or the actual human themselves. Like there's, or yeah, uh, yeah, explain. Yeah, a lot of Johns, so it's mostly men. But then there's like Ghislaine Maxwell, who's on trial right now, and I'm reading all that. It's like, it's horrific. It's, it's horrific. You know, there, there's a huge proportion of traffickers, or at least in my mind, it's huge because I, I would have expected almost none. But there, there's a large proportion of traffickers that are female. Mm. And maybe they're running a massage parlor. Uh, you know, there's, there's in the range of 10,000 illegal massage businesses. And a fair proportion of them are run by women. And, you know, this, the, the problem with illegal massage parlors is that they can kind of pose as being illegal. And one of the things that's kind of jarring is in the past, if, if you were selling sex out of, out of the building, you were probably in some kind of red light district. Mm. Now you're right out in the middle of town because you're sort of posing as, a legal massage parlor, mm. but uh, if you're, if if you, I mean, and let me oh, let me be so clear about this. There are lots of legal massage parlors, yeah, ones yeah. that don't where for the right price, you're not going to get a happy ending. Yeah, right. But but since it's a little bit ambiguous, the illegal ones can kind of move in and pretend to be legal, mm. but I. A, a person I respect told me that the illegal massage parlor business is $2.8 billion in this country. That's a heck of a lot of money. And he said, you know, I can't know that he's right, but I can swear that he told me this, that $2 billion of it goes to China. And I, we got to talking about it. And he was saying that, you know, there are cartels that run this and 
that it, in some ways it resembles the mafia. Mm. But then he said, the mafia is kind of old hat. They're not as powerful and strong mm. as the people who are running massage parlors. I mean, frequently they'll, they'll have some, possibly a woman in the massage parlor, and we're only talking the illegal ones. Um, they, I, you know, it's a shame that, that there's this ambiguity between the legal ones and the illegal ones, yeah. but in the illegal ones, say it's run by a woman, mm -hmm. and maybe it even appears in the paperwork that she's the owner. She's not. Mm. She is part of a cartel that, that might, have, might have dozens of massage parlors. Mm. And yeah, one, one of the things that they can do since it's a cartel is, supposing there's a girl who's been working, let's say that she's been lured into this country from, let's say, China, mm -hmm. or possibly a Korea or Thailand, you know, an Asian country. She's been lured to this country with the promise of a great job in the hospitality industry. Mm. And she's expecting to work in a hotel or a restaurant. She arrives in this country. They take her passport. They have her absolutely terrified of the law. And if she doesn't provide the happy endings that, that they want her to do, she's going to be beaten or starved or tortured. Mm. And $2 billion, according to my friend, is going right back to China illegally. It's, uh, it's something I've always been fascinated with. And the Bible talks about the put on the whole armor of God. And it says, you have in the King James Version, it says, have your loins girt about with truth. So truth covers our sexual reproductive re reproduction areas. And I've all, I was always curious, like why wow. the belt of truth? Like why, what is, why not the helmet of truth, but the belt of truth around our sex organs. And I think it's based on when we walk in truth, it keeps us from the deviance of this, this compulsion and this energy to go down paths that we were never intended to go down in the very beginning. So truth protects us sexually or the absence of truth leaves us hurting in that area. I wish there were an easy answer, but it, it just grieves me how much God is being kicked out of the, out of the public sphere yeah. because I, I mean, we've seen it. We don't have to guess that the more, the more God's out of the picture, the, the more cruel we are to each other. Mm. Yeah, that's right. I want to, we'll get back to, to, and we'll talk about the website, but in our remaining time, I would love to just hear, not just here, but I would love to hear some lessons that you learned from your father in business. Cause everyone listening, Mitzi, we're talking about this nonprofit, which is so important, but you are a successful business executive on your own, right? On your own, in your own two feet in this world. And yet you inherited a lot of wisdom and, and you, you came from a lot of wisdom in business. Um, you're, the Purdue family, you built business together. You, However, I want to hear what your dad learned in these dreams. This is something, or, or I don't even know if I'm saying it right, but I would love to hear like 
where did your dad get his business acumen or how did he start to hear these beautiful well, truths? You know, it's, it's almost mysterious because, you know, as a, as a child, I was, it was just clear to, as could be to me that, you know, that I, I came from a, a family that was doing really well. Mm. Uh, at his death, father owned, or the family owned 400 hotels. And wherever we went, you know, we were staying in the presidential suites. Wow. In fact, I, I could make a guess that, I mean, there are some people who've stayed in more presidential suites than I have, but, but not a huge number. Wow. Uh, so, you know, it's clear to me that, that father was really a success. And so I was forever asking him, you know, where did the ideas come from? How, I mean, you, there, there, there's a phrase in baseball that nobody bats a thousand. And yet it almost felt as if he was batting a thousand, he'd make a decision mm. and it would work. Mm. And you know, so I asked him and he told me, he said that he hoped that the Wall Street analysts didn't hear his answer, but he said, in the course of building the Sheraton Hotel chain from no hotels to 400, he said there were between half a dozen and a dozen times where he would be faced with a decision where he knew that if he made the right decision, the company would flourish. Mm -hmm. If he made the wrong decision, the company could go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And by the way, he he had on his shoulders an amount of pressure that I don't think I could endure for five minutes mm -hmm. because, you know, if I make a mistake, maybe a few people are affected. If he made a mistake, you know, 20,000 people could lose their jobs. Yeah. And yeah, that's, can, can you even imagine how heavy that is? Yeah. Knowing that somebody might not be able to put their kid through college or might not have a decent retirement or, yeah. I mean, it's, it's pressure that, I don't even understand. Yeah. I had 10 full-time employees in my business and that was enough. I can't even imagine yeah, getting to that tens of thousands. I mean, that's just. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's huge, 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 huge. What? All right. So he told me he'd go to bed at night, you know, very aware of, of the seriousness of what he had to decide. Mm. But he also told me he'd go to bed having no idea which way to go. None. And, you know, as aware as a human being can be that, that this would be a decision that would be just extraordinarily consequential for a great many people. I mean, I don't know how he slept even. I couldn't. Mm. Nevertheless, he did. I think he was known to be a good sleeper. <laughs> he told me he'd wake up in the morning with perfect clarity of what to do. Mm. And I said, well, <laughs> how'd that happen? And he said... And I don't know if he meant this literally or if he was being metaphorical. I wish, I wish he were alive today and I could ask, but he said, I talked with my ancestors or I talked with ancestors and they gave me the answer. Wow. And, yeah. uh, and again, is, was he being like poetic or did he literally mean I talked with the ancestors and they gave me the answer? I, I don't know the, I don't know. What do you think? What's your guess? Uh, I'd like to think that he actually did talk to the ancestors that there, that in our dreams in Judaism, our very first prayer is we thank God for returning our soul within us with compassion and loving kindness for great is his faithfulness because our soul, we're never as close to death as when we sleep. So where are we when we're sleeping? Where is our soul? What is, what is actually happening that the human body can just conk out? 
without fear and go somewhere. And I love to think that, yeah, your, your father was in communication with the wisdom of the elder council or the ancestral line. I think that's beautiful. So I, I love for me, no problem believing that that is a literal story. Well, if, if you told me, Missy, you've got a bet, did he mean it literally or was he being poetic? I can't know, but I'd sure bet that he was literally meaning it because, mm. you know, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, the decisions turned out to be right. Yeah. And, and, and since nobody, back, you, you can't toss a fair coin and get like heads 10 times in a row. Yeah. And yet he did. I mean, he defied the odds. Hmm. Hmm. That's beautiful. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> well, first of all, we have not because we asked not. That's a verse in the Bible. We have not because we asked not. Oh, that's so important. Yes. And, and really, you know, how we got connected with Mark and Crystal Hanson, their new book, Ask. I mean, it's such a simple premise. We have not because we, I think it takes humility. What, it, what I'm struck by, and I didn't know your father, and I, I do know the hotel world because I worked when I had my ad agency we predominantly worked in the hotel industry around the country and the ownership groups and the, the actual flagships and the, all the brands and all the different things. So I'd imagine that your father was in the room with very powerful people having very important discussions, but it takes a sense of humility to ask and even to ask the ancestors and even to share with his own daughter, I think as a father, like, so your father must've had a beautiful humility to him Actually, I think both Frank Perdue and Father did. Hmm. Uh, the, I have a friend who, whose specialty is uh, body language. Hmm. And he had a comment about Frank Perdue that when Frank Perdue would enter a room, you know, he was somebody whose name appeared on the checks of 20,000 employees. Yeah. So, you know, this is a big person. They're, they're, I mean, there are lots of companies that are bigger, but 20,000 is pretty big. Yeah. Oh, I think it's like one of the largest employers in Maryland. So, so this guy is an alpha male. He's, he's somebody who built it himself. And you know, he could have walked into a room, you know, taking up lots of space, chest out, shoulders back, just taking up space, which is you know, kind of what you'd expect. Yeah. But my body language expert friend said, no, he was, he was extremely good at not taking up all the oxygen. Mm. He would be you know, kind of not taking up space and almost humble. Mm. And he'd ask people their opinions. Wow. And his attitude, which he told me was, none of us is as smart as all of us. And there's a lot of wisdom in this that. room. And I, my job is to tap into it. I love that. I love that. I always use the Bible. There's a, a verse in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And I think that if we see everyone as a counselor, no matter their perspective in life, but we have the humility to ask and say, what do you think? First of all, it feels good to be asked our opinion. So people feel good and, and entrusted, but also to take that and chew on it. And it's beautiful. It really is. Well, something else that I'd observe, because I'm a writer by trade, and so I, I have some training in, in being observant, or at least trying my darn best to be observant. Mm -hmm. And among the things that I noticed about Frank, we were married for 17 years before his passing. And I felt, or I observed, 
that in almost every interaction, he might ask a question, but otherwise 90% of the time he's listening. Mm. And, and that could be, you know, whether he's talking with a cab driver or maybe he's calling on somebody and there's a, a secretary or a receptionist, mm. ask questions and then listen. Or if he was in, let's say a sales meeting, uh, one of the things that he was pretty careful to do with, say there's a sales meeting or in any kind of business meeting of say his employees, he would take great care to make sure that they didn't know the answer that he wanted because he was perfectly aware that if they knew ahead of time what he wanted, uh, that they were going to twist into a, a pretzel and give him the answer that he wanted. Mm. And so he'd take great care not to have people know what he favored because he said that way you get the best chance of getting the freshest ideas. See, the, you know, if, if I was, if I wasn't talking to you and I talked about Frank, I'm like, Frank sounds like a cool guy. Oh, the, uh, the coolest guy in the yeah. whole world. Yeah. No, I, I mean, he was my hero from beginning to end. And I put a certain amount of effort into having him not know that, but he was. Wow, that is so beautiful. You, you have, you're really, you're a cool person, Mitzi. It's fascinating your, your journey on this earth and the family. I really believe in soul contracts. And so um, in your soul saw the family that you would jump into and then eventually the family you would create with, with Frank and the, the life. And it's really, well, to me, one of the great mysteries of life, which, which makes me more open to, how about the certainty that there are forces that we just can't even begin to, to get, but yeah. they're there, which is when Frank and I met, we decided to marry right off. <laughs> That's right. Tell this story real quick. This is such a great story. Well, I was, I lived in, in California. I had a, I had a television show, but I was also growing rice hmm. as in, you know, the grain that you eat with chopsticks if you're yeah. Chinese. Yeah. All right. So I'm growing rice in California, but there was a party in New York that, that I attended. I, I'm trying to say Washington, DC. There was a party in Washington, DC that I attended hmm. and uh, I had to leave early. Frank Perdue arrived late. We only overlapped by 10 minutes. Mm. And the first five minutes were spent talking. You know, we both knew each other was divorced and we were talking about how we'd never remarry again, how it was an institution designed to make people miserable. <laughs> and all right, that's the first five minutes, but we were just totally agreeing on, on, on this. But then somewhere around five minutes into it, we started discussing that that was unfortunate because it meant growing old alone, but that was our fate because we'd never trust anybody again. Mm. And then he looked down at me and he said, I believe I could trust you. And I looked up at him and I said, I believe I could trust you. Wow. And the next five minutes were talk spent talking about what our marriage would be like. It would be supportive and not competitive and would be there for the good and the bad. Mm -hmm. And so it was for the next 17 years. That is so beautiful. Uh, and when we married, we had known each other in person six weeks and three days. And <laughs> so great. But, but to me, the mystery is, you know, I was 48 at the time. He was 68. Hmm. We both came from, how about, I'm trying to think how to put delicately the fact that we were both filthy, stinking rich. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, people who uh, who have that background normally are extremely self protective and yeah. 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 and and how about paranoid? Yeah, certainly, certainly. And, and how we could both make a commitment immediately. It, it does not make sense. I mean, he was old enough to know better. I was old enough to know better. Mm. We went and did it. Wow. And, and it was so the right decision because, I mean, I love the Purdue family beyond imagination. Uh, I, think, I think a day doesn't go by when I, I don't talk with one of my Purdue relatives. Wow. Like, I'm really proud that uh, I was talking with my stepson who runs the company for half an hour today. Wow. I, I have a stepdaughter that, you know, there, there were some things going on in her life that, that I respect and admire, mm. but she wanted to talk about them three times yesterday. I'm just honored that, that she wants to. Wow. Is there, I forgot that. It's your, I know you go, is Mitzi your birth name? Because it's such a. No, my, no, my real name's Mary. Mary, I love yeah. I love the name Mitzi. Is that was that a nickname you were given as as a girl, young girl? Well, here's what happened. Uh, my brothers and my uncles all married Marys, and my mother's name oh, was yeah. Mary. Oh, so wow. my father, you know, if my father could call Mary, and you know, like six women come running, so we all got nicknames. That's awesome. Well, I love that nickname, Mitzi. Oh, and I love it too. You know, thanks, Daddy. Yeah, it's a great name. And I, for everyone listening, that's a, you reminded me of a really beautiful saying that I've tried to implement in my own marriage that I'm not looking for um, the, the star. I'm looking for a co-star. And it sounds like you and Frank were uh. stars together. And, and that, that is something I've implemented in my marriage of, because my wife and I were both were in TV. We're both had our careers. We both had that persona and we chose to be co-stars in this reality. And it sounds like that's the way to go if you and Frank had such a good, good experience. And so. Well, I do have a theory that it's, it's kind of important for both to bring an equal amount to the table, but one might do it by being brilliant. Another might be, do it by being hospitable. And I mean, there, there are different things you can bring to the table. Yeah, exactly. That's really So I, I felt, um, well, I'm not sure that I felt exactly an equal but I did feel that I brought things to the table that he badly wanted. Mm. Like how about warmth and affection and just totally being on his side. And yeah. Yeah. A co-star. It's beautiful. It really is. It's so beautiful. Mitzi, I am so thankful you came on and, and is there anything we didn't cover that you would like to cover? Yes. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> go, go. <laughs> yeah. But I, I need people to have uh, oh, a pencil and paper handy or an iPhone handy or a smartphone. Because if they care about human trafficking, it would be absolutely wonderful if they would text WIN, as in WIN, to 55312. And let me tell you what happens if you do. Mm. Uh, several nice things. One, you get a free ticket to an hour-long conference on May 11th, which will, it's put on by the Fulbright Association. I, I get to moderate it. And it will explain some wonderful new approaches to attacking human prop, uh, human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And it will be just full of hope and uplift and something that you can do. Okay, that's one thing that you get by uh, typing WIN to 55312. The other thing which I'd love you to do, 
I guess I'm addressing your audience now. Yeah, you? yeah absolutely. But I, include me in this. Absolutely. Okay. You generic. Uh, if you type 55312, if you type win to 55312, you'll also come to my website. Mm. And there, there are a couple of, of things that might interest you. One is I write a weekly blog mm. and it's one that, you know, the feedback I get on it is that it's very uplifting. Mm. It's, it's full of hope. It, it tells dire stories and then good things that happened because of it. I mean, people tell me that they, that they walk away from one of my blogs feeling good. Wow. All right, we like that. Yeah. Another possibility is if you're moved by this and you really want to do something, contact me and you can get to me by going to, well, 55312, mm. uh, texting WIN to 55312. You arrive at my website, uh, there's a place to contact me and I'll answer any emails or letters. And if you'd like to volunteer, please let me know because I'll find, I'll find something for you to do that will match your interests and skills. And I think I can promise you, other people have told me that this is so, that you'll have the ride of your life. You'll do exciting work that's consequential, that will change lives. And at the end of your days, you can look back and say, I did something really important to make the world a better place. Yeah. So come join us. Beautiful. Absolutely. I will put that in the show notes as well. So everyone listening, I'll put all that information in the show notes. And Mitzi, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on for the second time, first time on this show. And, and um, you're just a, a brilliant soul. And I'm, I'm honored to be able to share this time with you. So thank you. Well, I would adore to come back and I adore spending time with you. And I love the premise of what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you. Mitzi, again, thank you so much. And everyone listening, thank you for joining me on this journey. I bless you. I love you. I honor you. Keep shining your light, brothers and sisters. Keep doing the work. Keep standing, like I said in the beginning, the intro of this video, for liberty and justice for all. Be the change that you want to see. Don't turn an eye away from that which you deem as ugly or too dark because someone is living in that in this very moment. And they are needing us to find the courage, the strength, and our own internal power to look at it, shine light on it. Not only liberate them, but also liberate ourselves. So I bless you all. I am Lucas Mack. This is the Golden Rule Revolution, and I'll talk to you on the next episode. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for listening. For support in your journey, go to my website, lucasmack.com.